2: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome. It's episode 474 of IAQ Radio. It's Friday, August 25th, 2017. And this week, we look forward to talking to Dr. Paul Wargaki for the hour. He's calling in from the uh, Technical Institute of uh, Technical University of Denmark. We're going to talk about CO2 and whether it's a pollutant or merely an index for indoor air quality. Looking forward to a great show with Dr. Wargaki. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors.
2: IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's j o n d o n.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers, feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com, count on us.
1: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at IAQTraining.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question.
2: And now, you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to C Zlotnik at cs.com. Or, if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question.
0: Hello, everybody.
1: Congratulations to John Lapoteer of Florida IQ Solutions, Winter Springs, Florida, who answered the prior trivia question, correctly identifying Robert Koch as the father of modern bacteriology and winner of a Nobel Prize. The IQ radio trivia question for today, Friday, August 25th, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company. Creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's two part trivia question Name the first gas to be distinguished from ordinary air and the scientist who discovered it. Back to you, Joe. Okay, today's guest is Dr. Paul Wargaki. He's an associate professor professor at the Technical University of Denmark, uh, past president of the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, past chair of the ASHRAE Environmental Health Committee, uh, vice president of Indoor Air 2008, and a list, if I went over here, of uh, papers and uh, positions that would take for the rest of the hour. So what we're going to do is just jump over and see. Do we have you on the line, Powell?
0: Oh, you can hear me now. Sorry, I can I hear you now. Yes, I'm uh, online. <laughs> Hello, Joe. Hello uh, to yeah. all the listeners.
1: Great to have you. Sorry from about from the distant the, Denmark. From distant, from yeah, this is great. We've had people from uh let's see germany denmark uh portugal great britain australia so it's an international crowd and it's great to have you on you know i saw you speak um at the iaqa conference in uh i guess that was like march of this year and I i was fascinated by the presentation you did a lot of it was focused on co2 carbon dioxide um there's been a lot of recent interest in carbon dioxide. We we made the title of the show, Is CO2 a Pollutant or Merely an Index for IAQ? But before we get into that, let's let's get into a little of your background. Um, How did you first start getting interested in indoor air quality issues?
0: Uh, Thank you, Joe. Uh, And thank you for the kind words. You know, uh, it's always to be an honor, you know, to be a plenary speaker, but, you know, it's a little bit of stress usually you know, to come up with a good topic and then present it, uh, not only just fully presented, but also presented in a way that the audience will not fall asleep. So uh, hopefully uh, uh, our listeners will not fall asleep today when I speak. So coming back to your first uh, question is uh, actually, you know, it happened after, nearly after I graduated as a student from the university. So my background is that I, I was educated in Poland, and towards the end of my studies, just just before the graduation, uh, I went to Denmark uh, for a short visit. Uh, it was a visit of a uh, few months, and this is where I met uh, Professor Fanger, who probably some of the listeners would know him from the the ppd model for the thermal comfort. Uh, but he was also known for many other, you know, inventions. Uh, Uh, For the IAQ, among others, you know, he was one of the founders of the current, you know, ventilation rates that are in 62.1, Asher 62.1. But nevertheless, during the course of the studies in Poland, uh, the Warsaw University of Technology, I was more interested in the heating, radiators, and all that stuff. And when uh, when I went to Denmark, I got sort of fascinated by the research that was done by the institute there. Um, basically, I was doing a small project on the use of fragrances to mask the pollutants. So basically, you may think of uh, you know using a different you uh, uh, odorants you know that could uh, fragrances that could mask some uh, noxious or smelly pollutants, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, this caused this actually got me interested in IAQ, I went back to Poland uh, after the, the short stay, and then returned in '93 for another short stay, uh, which actually uh, is still going on, because uh, <laughs> I have never returned to Poland after my uh, coming in '93. And then I was involved uh, in many different projects uh, related to IAQ. So
1: you started out... With... Well,
0: basically, very very briefly, it's because, you know, the group and the people and, you know, fascination, the first fascination for the research that has been done, facilities available here, and a very nice, you know, uh, atmosphere and a, um, sort of engagement in the topic.
1: Well, tell us a little more about the Technical University of Denmark. What are the, you know, primary interests of studies... What type of degrees uh, do they specialize in?
0: Yeah. Well, Technical University of Denmark is one of the largest technical universities in Scandinavia, if not the largest. You know, I'll try to. You know, I prepared for the interview, so I can tell you. You know, we are like more than ten thousand students, and. Uh, um, We have like uh, 1,500, nearly 1,500, 1,200 PhD students, about 5,000 staff. And uh, then we have, um, you know, uh, let me see here. We have 19 departments, you know, five centers, and five affiliated companies. So we are pretty large. Mm -hmm. So this is a technical university, so the, the... the science that we, uh, or maybe education that we promote here is actually uh, the um, technical related, technically related. So, you know, everything that is related, you know, to the uh, mechanic, mechanical engineering, to chemistry, you know, but we have also the uh, space department, which is uh, related to, you know, studying the space issues and then also, um, nanotechnology department, uh, chemistry department, and so on so all, all those sciences that you know that are taught at the technical university probably we are very much uh, known for of course our group outside in the world, but also other groups are famous for doing some work on energy and uh, some work on the, uh, uh, bio uh, biotechnology and so on I see.
1: And you you started out studying fragrances, I guess, and and how to cover up IAQ uh, related odors. What other areas of um, indoor air quality have you focused on over the years?
0: Over the years, uh, I actually started with you know fragrances, and then my first real task was to develop the reference. um, uh, reference exposure for pollutants. So I was trying to simulate or or try to create the artificial indoor air in a sense. So Mm. I was trying to combine different pollutants together that are found indoors uh, to basically replicate and create a sort of a reference exposure or reference gas for indoor air. Hmm. And that was one of the parts, one of the topics of my PhD. Actually, PhD was a 3 parts, so I was looking at this aspect. This was one of them, and I was looking at different mixtures. Uh, one of the mixture had 22 components, and the others were uh, less components, actually. But uh, we figured out that it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, uh, the reason is basically, you know, you you have... Different mixtures of pollutants in those, and uh, not only I mean even if we um, identify major pollutants, they can be in different you know concentrations mm-hmm. depending on uh, different um, uh, environment and then you know those different combinations may elicit the different responses from people so it, it was a sort of you know I would say very difficult task, uh, or maybe impossible to realize, but nevertheless we learned a lot ab- uh, uh, about that. Okay. Then uh, one an- another task was to look on um, how to uh, combine ventilation requirements for different types of pollutants indoors. You know, y- you know, we have different sources of pollutants indoors, and we have sources, you know, from people of human bioeffluents, we have building materials. At that time, we had also tobacco smoking and so on, and the question was: if we, if we define the ventilation for each group of pollutants, how, we should, what we should do with the um, ventilation requirements? Should we add those ventilation requirements, or we should ventilate for the most, the uh, you know, smelly or most uh, or the other pollutants that has the highest concentration or the the strongest source, and so on, and so on, and then. Towards the end of my work, I, uh, I got a task to look at the effects of uh, pollutants on human cognitive performance, uh, basically on whether the indoor air pollution can have measurable effect on how we perform at work. And that's probably my, my, uh, my biggest interest and has been a biggest interest uh, in the last you know, 15 or 20 years and probably my name is mostly recognized uh, for this type of research uh, if you look through the literature and uh, if you talk with people. But I have also other interests uh, and uh, my major probably interest is related to uh, air quality um, and uh, uh, understanding the effects of exposures on uh, on humans and how we can mitigate uh, the, um, the those negative effects that those exposures can produce
1: you know that kind of nicely rolls into the topic for today which is some recent studies we've been seeing on you know co2 and how it affects health and performance and you gave a nice introduction to the history of co2 during your presentation um, can you just Kind of walk listeners through some of the early research on CO two. Who did it? Why they did it? And um, what up until fairly recently was you know uh, the common, um, I guess what what people thought about CO two until you know we've seen some changes here recently. Well,
0: yes. Let's first. I think we should make sure that our listeners uh, understand that we are talking about the CO2 uh, indoors, not outdoors, because, you know, when we talk about a climate change, um, very often we talk about a CO2 emission, right, and then that is causing a climate change, so we are not talking about this CO2, we are talking about a CO2 that is indoors, and is primarily generated uh, by us. Uh, it's a metabolite, uh, human metabolite. And of course, there are certain situations that CO2 is generated uh, through the process. Uh, For example, in the beer production or maybe some other, but uh, basically what we are talking about is the CO2 that is produced by humans. So, well, the, 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 uh, the CO2 was discussed already in the 18th century, and uh, actually it was Lavoisier, uh, who was the father of gaseous, uh, gaseous uh, chemistry, and um, he actually recognized the CO2 and uh, oxygen and attributed all negative effects uh, to not to to the presence of uh, carbon dioxide, basically. Before Lavoisier. It was Mayo who actually observed, or uh, maybe attributed, the negative effects that he he was seeing with animals to so-called igneo aerial particles, which were actually a carbon dioxide. So this was the first, you know, research on yeah CO2 probably that was performed, and at that time in the 18th century and later on, CO2 was considered to be a pollutant, uh, basically, are causing that negative effect on humans so all the um negative effects that have been seen uh, in relation to the exposure were attributed to uh, co2 but then later in the 19th century Pettenkofer, koffer the um, german hygienist uh, from munich a very well known hygienist and uh, actually to be honest uh, yeah, his uh, books, uh, uh, whatever reports that he produced at that time, are still valid, actually. Huh. So he, um, he performed a research who showed, uh, which showed that it is not a CO2 that is responsible uh, for the effects that we see. It, it, cor- he said that the corruption of the air is not caused solely by the carbon dioxide content. We, uh, uh, it's actually caused by the uh, emissions from humans which he called you know human body odor or human bioeffluence, he considered the CO two as an excellent marker of the pollutants that are emitted by humans in in the situation when all the other pollutants are removed or avoided in those. And then um so then after that the CO two um uh, uh be, be became a sort of an indicator of indoor air quality and uh uh, uh suggested the level of co2 of 1000 ppm to be um to be a level uh uh above which we can expect the uh, negative or the unacceptable uh, uh, air quality or perception with the, with the air quality and uh, and uh, he uh, and then the CO two uh, began to be uh, used as the indicator of the unacceptable indoor air quality, a uh, marker of our, uh, indoor air quality, and uh, and it it is used uh, uh, until he, until today like this. Of course, there has been also a lot of research on CO two at the um, for the toxic reasons. So. Uh, I don't want to go into detail, but there have been a lot of studies looking at what levels the CO2 is toxic for humans. And uh, if we look through this research, uh, we see that uh, these are levels which are far above the exposure levels that we see indoors. And uh, if you look at the occupational uh, guidelines, we see the, the recommended, or uh, the guideline value at 5,000 ppm, which is uh, seldom uh, measured uh, indoors. And this is an exposure that can last for eight hours during the working day to carbon dioxide. And it's not considered to produce any toxic effects on humans or harmful effects on humans. And 30,000 is a stall value. So it's very, very high levels hardly ever, you know, experience and uh, never, 30,000 is never experienced in those probably, unless you have a source of uh, carbon dioxide. So CO2, in the beginning, in the early years, was considered to be uh, a pollutant, and then um, uh, since Pettenkoff has gone, since 19th century, it has been considered uh, merely as a marker of indoor air quality. Um, m- Sometimes, you know, erroneously used uh, because it's basically only can be considered as the marker of indoor air quality if we have humans indoors. Uh, Without humans, I mean, there is no source of carbon dioxide. So, you know, the levels of carbon dioxide can be as low as the outdoor level, which does not mean that the exposure levels or the pollutant levels are, you know, at low concentrations, which do not cause uh, negative effects or harmful effects on humans. I'm curious, okay.
1: with respect to the military and the U.S. military. You know, early on, we put people in submarines, and they were obviously creating, you know, high levels of CO two. Uh, was there much research? I'm sure they did research on it, but can you comment on what they found?
0: I was not able to find. I know that there has been some research that showed that, you know, the bones uh, um, of these uh, marines that were staying long in the submarines were, you know, uh, softer. Hmm. And, uh, but I, you know, I was not able or, you know, sorry for, you know, if I missed, some studies, but uh, uh, I was not able to see any, you know, studies that show negative effects of the exposures in the submarines. You know, in a snorkel submarine, we would expect the um, levels of less than a 3,000 ppm, uh, um, and the in the nuclear uh, submarine, we we would expect the uh, the levels of uh, about, uh, you know, um, what is it? Uh, Sorry, in the uh, snorkel submarines, about uh, below 30,000 ppm, and then in the nuclear submarines, below 10,000 ppm, uh, maybe 7,000 ppm, so higher than what is recommended for the, um, uh, a, Uh, uh, occupational
1: limits you would think that you know these are people with nuclear weapons and you know they've got lives in their hands I mean you would think if there was good research to indicate their performance was jeopardized by you know high levels of CO2 the military would be pretty concerned about that but I've like you I've never seen much research that um or even any reference to research that talks about that
0: yeah, we, we will be talking uh, in a moment about the studies which show you know the, the effects of carbon dioxide at much much lower levels than, than occur uh, uh, um, in submarines and actually levels uh, that cause uh, effects on decision making. So basically, in a battle situation in in a submarine, you have to take decisions, right? And, uh, you know, high level of CO2 would probably um, reduce your ability to take the right decisions, right? So, um, well, um, it is probably a different situation. And also, you know, it has always, I was always wondering why, you know, why. We do not see any effects in the submarine. But remember that you know people, the marines are specially selected, and especially officers. You know the um, the ones which are in charge of the submarine. You know these are people after very very long training. So they are able to control. You know somehow maybe everything, uh, and maybe including a little bit of their physiology and uh, say, you know how they feel and. Uh, so they can maybe overrule, the, if there is a negative effect, they may overrule it or combat it uh, in this uh, very, very stressful situation, which is a battle. All so right. the fact that we do not see those effects there in submarine does not rule, rule out the possibility that, that the effect can occur, but they basically are able to you know, combat it.
1: Yeah, through either processes or training or having people that are, uh, exactly. you know...
0: A, exactly. A, so they are especially selective people for yep. this type of job.
1: I see. Well, let's go to... Um, there was 2012 paper, uh, Is CO2 an indoor pollutant? Direct effects of low to moderate CO2 concentrations on human decision-making and performance. And this was... Uh, a paper that. Um, well, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about that paper? A couple of the authors have been on the show. We had Mark Mandel, Bill Fisk. I, you, Satish, I'm not familiar with, but maybe you could tell people a little bit more about that paper. You
0: know, these are very recognized uh, scientists. Uh, you know, Bill Bill Fisk and Mark Mandel. Uh, you know, these are the the persons you know that you, when you look through the literature on IAQ, you will find you know their names on the very significant publications. So uh, I know the full story, and probably Bill Fisk uh, told you the story earlier on the show. If not, maybe I can uh, tell uh, a story. So Bill got fascinated by the uh, two things, and uh, he got fascinated by. Um, Uh, by the uh, um, uh, measuring uh, battery for performance that uh, was uh, introduced by Usha Sopish. And uh, uh, Bill Fisk uh, has been looking at the literature on the effects of indoor environmental uh, quality on performance, and uh, most of this literature is um, basically uh, using uh, a simple uh, cognitive task to measure uh, performance of people. So he was looking for more sophisticated uh, way of measuring performance, and he got fascinated by the uh, battery that uh, was presented by Usha. At the same time, he found uh, two papers that were published in Hungarian scientific journal, in English, actually, which um, reported uh, effects of uh, carbon dioxide on a human performance. So um, at the levels of about 4,000 ppm, th- those those studies are not very systematic. But nevertheless, it somehow Bill got interested in the in the in the topic. So what they did is uh, having receiving a, a large funding from the uh, California EPA, I believe, or DOE, I'm not sure. Um, uh, They decided to run uh, a small experiment in which they would look at the effect of a pure carbon dioxide on the um, cognitive performance measured with the Satish uh, uh, battery. And the Satish battery is um, sort of a unique uh, method of measuring performance because it it looks at the um, uh, it measures the um how uh, capable we are or how able we are to take decision on this stressful situation. So we basically challenged with um, some situations, say we can be um, uh, in charge of the uh, 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 of evacuating people from the town or maybe evacuating people from the building and so and on, so on, and then we have to take decisions and uh, those decisions are then somehow measured by the software and then transferred into the measurable, uh, you know, some numbers that uh, mean something, you know, uh, in terms of the uh, cognitive performance. So what they did is they had uh, 22 subjects and then they exposed them to the um, uh, two levels, of elevated levels of carbon dioxide. Um, So they had a reference condition in which the level of carbon dioxide was um, more or less similar to the outdoor level, slightly above that. Uh, It was about 600 ppm. And then they had two elevated levels, 1,000 ppm and 2,500 ppm. So um, uh, in each of these conditions, they had a very, very high ventilation rate in the exposure chamber so that any type of uh, pollutants that would be produced by the people present or the subjects that were exposed or any type of a material that is inside the chamber would be diluted to the insignificant levels. And they actually confirmed that with the chemical measurements that, you know, they had a very, very low background levels of pollutants. So the dominant pollutant in those exposure studies uh, was carbon dioxide. Again, they exposed it to 1000 and 2500 PPM. And what they saw is a systematic reduction in the performance on the ability to take decisions by the subjects and it was across they they defined nine different measures of the um, defining uh, the uh, the decision making process from a, a measures that uh, reflect the uh, low cognitive demand to the uh, measures that uh, require high cognitive demand, and except perhaps one or two measures, for all of them they have seen systematic aggravation of disability, and uh, they saw it at 1,000 ppm, and uh, uh, but it was not statistically significant, and then when at 2,500 ppm, they actually. Um, uh, so it a uh, statistically significant uh, effect, which means that they cannot exclude it, uh, that this is a, a random effect. And uh, but if you look at the data, it's basically a very systematic, so there is an effect at 1,000 ppm and then 2,000 ppm. So so this is, re- it was really um, a sort of an, eye- an eye-opener and sort of like, you know, um, strike of a thunder, you know, uh, uh, you know, or whatever if for many uh, researchers is, oh come on maybe uh, when we we consider the carbon dioxide as the uh, indicator of the air quality but maybe co2 is actually uh, a pollutant itself and it may be causing some negative uh, effects on performance if for that particular you know battery uh, of tests that were uh, uh, presented for the subjects and um, I must say, when I uh, read the paper uh, for the first time, I was struck by, you know, uh, by by how well the study was designed. There's basically, you, you cannot, you know, object anything in the design, and you cannot object anything in the results. It's very, very clear and straightforward effect. Hmm. So this is why it probably uh, was so much, got so much attraction, you know, by, in, in the... Uh, uh, in the
1: field and I think it it led to other studies as well and and what we're going to do is we're going to break for halftime now and uh, stop and thank our sponsors and then when we come back we're going to uh, talk a little bit about the paper that came out of Harvard and then two papers that uh, your group put out uh, not long ago in 2016 I believe so we'll be back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Powell Wagarki in about 90 seconds
2: IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ Marquee Sponsors are... Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers. Feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com, count on us.
1: Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Powell Wagarki on the line. i, I Got a quick um, just clarification on the first study we just discussed, uh, Satish Mendel. At all, um, they did not, if I recall correctly, did not look at health outcomes just performance. Is that correct?
0: Well, um, they are not reporting health outcomes. Yes. Okay. In the paper. All right. So we 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 don't uh, know uh, what was the. Um, well, actually, we don't know um, uh, anything about that. So they only look at the uh, performance outcomes. Yes, uh, I'll report them uh, in the paper.
1: So the the next paper we wanted to talk about is uh, in 2015 associations of cognitive function scores with carbon dioxide ventilation and Volatile Organic Compound Exposures in Office Workers, a Controlled Exposure Study of Green and Conventional Office Environments. This was uh, Joe Allen, uh, Pierce McNaughton, Usha Satish again, and a couple others, including John Spengler. Can you talk to listeners about that particular study, give them a little overview, just like you did with the first one, and, and talk a little bit about the results?
0: Yes, Um, just uh, to your comment, uh, it it would be very nice to see whether there have been any effects on the health outcomes, of course, because it would let us, uh, with some explanations of the effects that we see, unfortunately we could not see that. Um, As for the second study, so it is a sort of a replication uh, of the uh, study of Sotich, Mendel, and Fisk, and not only replication, but it's also an extension to the uh, to their study. So uh, they uh, so they included not only the, uh, they looked at uh, not only the effects of carbon dioxide, but also looked at the effects of other pollutants uh, uh, on the um, uh, cognitive performance, and the cognitive performance measured using the same battery of tests. So again, we are talking about the um, decision-making performance or the ability to take decisions, as measured with the battery uh, that uh, was uh, uh, used in other, you know, medical research, uh, from which you know Usha uh, is coming. usha study is coming. So what they did is they had a, you know, I saw the facilities actually. I didn't, I didn't have ch- a chance to see the facilities of the first study. But I uh, saw the facilities and they are existing actually still in Syracuse, uh, center of excellence uh, in their building, uh, the facilities of the second study. So they have, a, they have an office like you know, the chamber. So basically what they have is a, a room with cubicles and uh, they can actually put people uh, in there and they can perform work like in the ordinary office you know, space. And each of the cubicle uh, is ventilated by the local ventilation. it's the underflow ventilation, so basically you know you can easily control the conditions in each cubicle it, it, It's very important maybe uh, information because if you think about cubicle, you always cubicles, you always think about the air distribution and how the air is provided and whether everyone is receiving the same, you know, exposure, or the same air, basically, and so on, so on. Mm-hmm. In their study, actually, each person received a similar exposure because, you know, they they received the same air from the underfloor uh, outlet, you know. And um, so what they did is they had this 24 people, and then, you know, they invited them to participate I- I- in the experiment, which lasted six days. And they basically... Uh, uh, they performed their work, uh, normal work, and uh, in this uh, facility for eight hours in six days experiments, and then each day they were exposed uh, to different conditions, and uh, two of them were two different levels of carbon dioxide, mm-hmm. and then uh, they uh, uh, at. Towards the end of the day, so they were working there for eight hours with one hour break for lunch. Towards the end of the uh, working day, they were again uh, 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 presented the uh, battery of tests and uh, they performed this battery of tests as in the first study. And uh, uh, also uh, the design here was a beautiful design of, of the Harvard It's so really, you know, it, it should be Know, presented to many people who plan to do the similar research, what they did also is that the first exposure that pe- that the, the people that were recruited for the study, uh, uh, they experienced, was repeated uh, also uh, towards the end at the last exposure, just to see whether the responses are the same or not. Hmm. So what they found is similar effects as a... Uh, as uh, the Sartich-Mendel-Fisker effect. Here they have you know, the eight hour exposure, so they, this is an extension to that. And uh, and at the levels, if I remember well, below 1000 ppm, so at even lower, slightly lower levels uh, of carbon dioxide that have been seen in, in the first paper. So it is basically a replication of uh, the um, first study, Extension, you know, to the longer, you know, uh, exposure, and uh, uh, again, uh, you know, different group of people, you know, different experimental uh, team, and again, uh, you know, uh, slightly lower levels of carbon dioxide. Hmm. The only diff- the only thing that uh, is probably not the diff- uh, uh, which is. Uh, uh, which we have to look at is that they used exactly the same battery of tests. So they did not, you know, use a, another type of task or another way of measuring performance. So uh, they basically used the same battery as in the first study. So basically this study re, re, or confirmed the first. So, I mean, now we have a two, two experiments that uh, have the same result, uh, showing that carbon dioxide... Uh, Maybe con- should be maybe should be considered as a pollutant, uh, especially as regards the uh, the cognitive performance.
1: Okay, interesting. Now, okay. let's let's move forward to two thousand sixteen, and, and the papers that your group put together here. We've got Zhang, Wargaki, and uh, Thurgood. I hope I pronounced that properly. Uh, oh, and Leon. Yeah. And is that? Yes. Thank you. Uh, uh, if so, you mention that, who yeah. is that group?
0: Okay, so um, so uh, I was very much interested in, in the first study of uh, Fisk, Mendel, and Satish. And uh, I promised myself and also promised Bill Fisk that uh, we, we would like to repeat the experiment uh, that they performed. And they, of course, they applauded to it because it's, uh, it's a good uh, idea always to repeat the study. So uh, for years I've been trying to find some uh, funding for that. It's not easy to find funding for this type of work unless you have uh, generous sponsors. You know, uh, and uh, Bill and uh, the, their group in California they had a very very generous funding, and then also the Harvard group got a very very generous funding. So they were lucky, and I was trying to look uh, some um, for 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 grant, and it was very difficult for me unless uh, un- until the moment that. I applied for the local funding in Denmark. Here in uh, the university, we can apply for uh, small funding that uh, is basically from the uh, small grants from the uh, uh, foundation that was set up by one of the uh, employees of our institute. So he was a book collector and after he died actually, some of the money that he collected over the years in books, you know, were converted into the uh, foundation, and then now there are grants given uh, for, a, I believe, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, this is uh, the disease that he died uh, of, and then and also for the research uh, for the researchers or the employees of the my institute. Huh. I'm at the department of civil engineering. So this is uh, i was able to get some money for it and then i had collaboration with the Jiaotong university and group there in china in shanghai and i was able to attract a phd student uh, this is the main author of those papers to come to denmark and uh, and perform the work so she was so is Coincidence, you know, all the lucky coincidence, she was able to get the uh, a PhD scholarship from China. So she came to our group and performed uh, uh, the work in our chambers. And I was able to pay for the uh, expenses uh, uh, that uh, were in relation to the experiments. The other two authors, uh, Theragot, she is uh She's a biostatistician so who helped us in the analysis and Lian uh, is the professor at the uh, Jiao Tong University. I see. Uh, the professor of uh, Xiao Jing uh, Zhang, uh, the main author. So this is a little bit of a h- history for that. So um, I got the money and uh, we decided to um, replicate the study of um, Fisk, uh, Mendel and Satish uh, in our chambers. We have a facilities, we have actually 12 environmental chambers, and we have very unique facilities. Some of our facilities, you know, are stainless steel chambers, which uh, there's very, very low levels of uh, pollutants uh, inside, and we decided to make an experiment in such chamber, although we would prefer to make it in the um, ordinary office, to just reduce the levels of pollutants. And uh, we also uh, wanted to use the same battery of tests as in uh, the study of uh, uh, Harvard study and the Fisk study, or Satish study. But uh, the cost, uh, you know, it was too high for us uh, for using this battery. So we decided uh, to use our own battery of performance test. So what we did is basically we exposed human subjects to to elevated level of carbon dioxide. Uh, again, we used uh, 1,000 ppm. And then we went up above the level that was uh, started by Fisk and Mendel and Statish to 3,000 ppm. <coughs> then we thought maybe we should also look on whether, you know, um, uh, the, the carbon dioxide is produced by humans, uh, very seldom is, you know, it's never appearing itself without any presence of any other pollutants. So then we, we were thinking, what if we just um, also exposed our subjects to human bioeffluents uh, including the carbon dioxide that is produced by people, you know, uh, to the same levels. And just to see whether we would see uh, stronger effects because there are other pollutants or maybe the similar effects as we would expect to see, you know, with carbon dioxide. So uh, our uh, experimental matrix looked like this. We had a reference condition, uh, so uh, low level of carbon dioxide, high ventilation rate. And then to this, we added carbon dioxide to elevated carbon dioxide but it was just artificial bi- uh, carbon dioxide from the cylinder like in the other studies to elevate it to 1000 and 3000 ppm and then what we did is we supplemented those two with the elevated levels of carbon dioxide but with human bio so, uh so um, we basically reduced the ventilation rate in the chamber to elevate the levels of the carbon dioxide and bioeffluents in the chamber produced by the subjects sitting in the chamber to exactly the same levels of 1,000 and 3,000 ppm. So now we have a matrix. I mean, we have a pure CO2 and CO2 together with bioeffluents. And we have uh, similar exposure lengths, actually maybe a little bit longer than uh, in the first study, and then different types of uh, cognitive tasks that uh, people uh, perform. We, we have a psychological tests, the uh, tests that are normally used by psychologists to test you know, different skills, cognitive skills, like you know, memory, like concentration, like reaction time. And then we have tasks that we usually perform, or used to perform at least in our, uh, at our work. At least two of them are proofreading and a, uh, proofreading of the text maybe, and text typing, we still type, and we still, from time to time, proofread the text that we type. But on top of it, we had some uh, arithmetical calculations. So we're not able to do the, um, basically, um, similar, uh, uh, uh ex- exposed subjects to, uh, or present the same uh, cognitive tasks as uh, in other studies. And then we supplemented the measurements with, you know, subjectively assess you know, um, health symptoms, acute health symptoms. So we were asking subjects at any of the conditions, whether they experienced any symptoms, such as whether they had problems with, with concentration or maybe they had some irritation and so on, so on. And also we measured their uh, physiological responses. The simple measurements, you know, of blood pressure, you know, heart rate and skin temperature, and also we measure the biomarkers in saliva, amylase and cortisol. Just to see, to get a little bit of informa- more information than the other studies, and maybe try to figure out are there any, you know, mechanisms behind, why is it that we see the effects of carbon dioxide? Try, hmm. Trying to understand the, uh, the what is going on, right? Because as you said, I mean, you know, why is it that carbon dioxide is causing those uh, dramatic effects on uh, cognitive performance? So and, results, right? <laughs> yes.
1: And what did, what did you find? I mean,
0: so um, that, yes, maybe some questions um, if you have, but I can go to the results immediately. Let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. So, to our surprise, we haven't seen effects of carbon dioxide. Uh-uh similar to what has been seen in the other two studies. So neither at 1,000 ppm or 3,000 ppm, uh, we, we saw any, you know, effects on, of carbon dioxide on a uh, cognitive performance of the type of tests and tasks that were performed by the subjects. These were different than in the other two studies that we have to uh, emphasize it several times. And we we haven't seen any you know indication either in the subjective responses of subjects or subjective ratings uh, that, 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 that there were any negative effects of the exposure of carbon dioxide. so basically in reported intensity of some acute health symptoms was unchanged by the elevated levels of carbon dioxide. Air quality was unchanged. And carbon dioxide is odorless, so we would not even expect that there would be any effect on the perceived air quality. But when when they were exposed to human bioeffluence with carbon dioxide, what we saw was the um, uh, we saw that that they responded to this exposure, already at 1,000 and maybe even more at 3,000 ppm, and the response was with the aggravated air quality. As perceived by them, and then uh, also they reported increased uh, in intensity uh, of symptoms related to the um, uh, we call them general symptoms, so neurobehavioral symptoms, such as you know difficulty to concentrate or fatigue and so on, and also few, not all, but few of the uh, uh, performance tests or the performance on few of the tasks that they uh, performed uh, was also uh, 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 affected by the elevated levels of uh, human bioaffluence uh, together with carbon dioxide, but this has not been seen for the pure carbon dioxide. Hmm. So There have been also some physiological responses, but I don't want to go into details. The most important was that we were not able to see the similar effects of carbon dioxide as in the other two studies. But we saw the effects when uh, carbon dioxide was present together with human bioeffluents. And those effects probably could be attributed to the other you know, pollutants emitted by humans rather than the carbon dioxide. What, but what? The, 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 the role of carbon dioxide is difficult to explain, and we cannot explain that. Yes, Joe, you, you have a question?
1: Well, I was just wondering what, you know, what kind of feedback have you gotten... Since publishing, you know, your, your papers, um, I would imagine there's a lot of questions. Uh, do you, what kind of questions are you getting from other researchers?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there are people who, uh, you, know, you know, we have a lot of questions here. And the, the question is uh, why we do not see the results. Uh, the, the, why do not we do not see effects of carbon dioxide why why we cannot repeat the, the similar effects as the other two groups you know uh how you know is, is this you know are, are the other are results you know uh, uh, should that be i mean, are the very strong results i mean are is, is, are the weak you know what is the leak weakness of those results what are the limitations of the results so in response to the latter you know we uh, what we did is we um exposed uh, people to the level of 5000 ppm you know we elevated carbon dioxide so we have supplemental supplementary study on a smaller a smaller group of subjects where we increase the level of carbon dioxide and again we could not you know see any effects on the same battery of tests and the questions were also whether the, the difference that we see is not maybe related to the method of testing you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, of the cognitive performance and um and actually probably this is where where, where it, it where it is all about i mean probably the method that we used for testing of cognitive performance in uh, our study and in the other studies leads to the difference between the two um, um experiment experiments I, would say. Uh, yes. that, I guess that makes sense because approach.
1: a lot of the earlier i mean none of the none of the earlier studies before 2012 would have used what i think you referred to as the satish battery of uh, you yep. know testing on on trying to determine performance no,
0: they were used in the medical uh, research and for the people with, you know, people who are drug addicts or maybe uh, who overuse alcohol and so on and so on. And, the, and this battery was seen to be sensitive to that. This battery was not used in the context of indoor air uh, uh, and indoor air quality. So very, you know, weak exposures or very weak stressors actually compared to the, to the other very, very significant, uh, you know, stressors such as, you know, know, drug addiction, you know, or maybe uh, something like that. So um, the only word that has been used with Satish was in relation to, I think, the painters who are exposed to the paint during painting. And then they have seen, you can think about, you know, freshly in the remodeled or freshly painted house you know in which you know people are exposed or maybe office workers moving into the freshly renovated office and then you know they probably have a high exposure to the po- pollutants emitted from the uh, paints uh, that are used and so on, so on and then they were able to show the uh, negative effects of those exposures on the, uh, the on the battery of tests that they presented but other than that, no, uh, not, none of us were uh, aware actually of this battery, and uh, uh, we were not using it. Uh, uh, so, this is a sort of a weakness of of their approach, because the battery has a very little connection to the, uh, the the real life. You know, we really don't know whether the effects that are seen. Uh, on the battery, how they translate to the actual normal work performance, I would say. So, uh, I mean, you know, what we see there, how it translates, is it the same magnitude or is it a less magnitude, and how well they can represent or simulate the normal office work. The same, actually, argument or the same criticism can be put to basically also our battery of tests, nevertheless, we usually try to expose people or have people or subject people to the, the, the tests that they are familiar with. You know, it's something mm-hmm. that they would normally do and uh, normally practice. So We're, we're running a little and, uh, over. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, sure, sure. Right, let, me,
1: let me give you a quick... So,
0: uh, basically...
1: Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm talking too much. Sorry. No, no, that's Please. fine. All right, let me... Let me do a quick, if you've got another five minutes, we we got a little start, uh, late sure, start. Sure, I
0: have plenty of time, no problem. All right.
1: No. There's a couple of questions I, I pulled off of your presentation from IAQA. They have nice, you know, short answers to them, and I think we can go through about five questions real quick that will kind of help summarize this. Um, first, um, does archival literature indicate that CO2 is toxic?
0: It does. So CO2 is toxic. And it's, but uh, it's toxic at the levels that are one order of magnitude higher than typically occurring indoors. Okay. So and basically at at the levels that are indoors, you would you could hardly expect, you know, toxic, the same toxic effects from CO2.
1: Okay. And does CO2 create risks for building occupants?
0: So... Our answer to that is no, but, you know, there is a caveat uh, to that. There is one thing, is that unless they perform very demanding cognitive tasks, so it's because of the work of the two groups in California and in Harvard, which shows that at the very highly demanding tasks, when we are talking about taking decisions and highly cognitive demanding uh, performance, at these levels, at, uh, when you perform this type of work, perhaps carbon dioxide can be uh, can have a negative effect.
1: Should ventilation standards be changed based on recent studies on the effects of CO2?
0: No, I mean, uh, why they should be, uh, basically, um, they do show that CO2 is an excellent proxy for the potential negative effects, you know, and then... There is no reason to change the ventilation requirements. I mean, the ventilation requirements, if properly, of course, uh, implemented indoors, they would uh, keep the CO2 level at maybe 1,000 ppm and even less than this. These are the levels that are seen in the offices. I mean, less than 1,800 ppm, at which probably the levels that, that the negative effects of CO2 would not be seen unless we perform the demanding task.
1: Yes. What about human bioaffluence? It seems like that's one area where we could do a little more study, um, separating out the effects of CO two versus bioaffluence. Is there any other way besides ventilation to lower exposures to bioaffluence?
0: Today probably not. But uh, we need to use our brain and develop the uh, innovative solutions uh, of the, some sort of a local control of the human bioeffluence. You could think about, you know, there are studies now uh, that uh, um, I know of uh, looking at the ventilated chairs, for example, be, being, uh, you know, and we know that there are ventilated chairs in cars. Which remove bioeffluents basically at the spot, you know, at the source. I see. So um, now today, basically, general ventilation. So what is the issue about the bioeffluents? Like this, if we reduce exposure to any other pollutants, then the bioeffluents become dominant pollutant, and this is why we should start looking back into the effects of bioeffluents because. Uh, there is a trend at least in europe to reduce pollutant emissions from uh, other sources of pollution and now we don't have tobacco smoking right and then building materials which are less emitting le- less emitting and these are organic you know and then uh, <clears throat> green materials you know emitting glass and then suddenly the human becomes really uh, a major a dominant source and we have very little information on whether this is an issue i mean to will bioeffluence produce negative effects on us. And that, that we have very little information about.
1: And let me turn it over to my co-host, Cliff Zlotnick. I know you've got a question.
0: No, no, I said I had none.
1: Oh, oh I'm sorry. Okay. I, I, I didn't read that properly. I'm, all right, before we go, I've got two more questions. One is... Um, so we we titled this show "Is CO two a pollutant or merely an index for indoor air quality?" And that was the title of your presentation at the IEQA oh. conference. So what's the answer?
0: Yeah. I, I would lean towards the latter part of that as merely an index of IQ for oh. IQ. Okay, it can but be. be sure about a carbon dioxide, yeah. So I don't think it is a pollutant, uh, and um, even if it is, I think. We, we should think about all the other pollutants as well. So I think it should not, you know, sort of make up, make us blind to all the other pollutants that are present in those. And only talking about carbon dioxide as a pollutant would basically mean that we can ignore all the other, we, or we can forget about the, all the other pollutants that are in those that we also need to deal with. Uh, but I do not see any toxicological evidence that at the levels in those CO2 is a pollutant. so it is an excellent uh uh index for indoor air quality when people are indoors
1: okay have you i we had um, a show not long ago with uh dr nuno kahan from portugal and he had looked at some c o two levels while people were sleeping and um i know that here in the states a lot of people button up their bedroom and you know especially in the winter when we're trying not to use a lot of uh uh, you know a lot of energy um are you aware of any good research that shows that maybe high levels of co2 affect sleep patterns
0: we we have only one study that actually was produced uh i'm one of the authors of that which looked at the um the uh, negative effects of poorer quality, uh, meaning elevated levels of human bioaffluence, or poor ventilation, basically, on sleep uh, quality. And we do show that the um, poorer quality or reduced ventilation uh, can produce, uh, can have negative effects on our sleep quality, and it even can affect our next-day performance. We don't have evidence or information, I, I'm not aware of of the effect of pure carbon dioxide or just carbon dioxide on uh, the sleep quality. But Joe, we can meet probably in a year from today and I will have this information because we are just about to start experiments together with Aarhus University, who is the principal, inv- inv- Aarhus, I- Aarhus is another town in, in Denmark at the university which we uh, start an experiment in which we would expose children at the school age, age probably 8 to 10, will be sleeping uh, in an environment in which there will be elevated carbon dioxide and elevated bioeffluent. And we want to see whether uh, sleeping in such environments have negative effects on their quality of sleep and the next day performance. It's very important. They go to school next day. You know, they need to be ready for schooling. You know, and then if it does affect, you know, it may have significant in, uh, uh, implications on how we ventilate our bedrooms.
1: Well, we this is really
0: un, you know unresearched territory. The sleep. You know, we spend one third of our life sleeping, and we know very little how the indoor environment affects our sleep quality.
1: I look forward to having you back. One of the topics for the future. Yes, I'd love to to do that. Before we go, is there anything you'd like to add, anything we missed, um, anything at all?
0: Not really. I mean, we have to remember that, you know, carbon dioxide outdoors is increasing and increasing very, very much. Uh, You know... uh, over the last uh, 10, 20 years, it's uh, increased by about 60 ppm. So it's actually important. So the uh, numbers that are used for, you know, uh, CO2 as the indicator of the uh, IQ should be somehow controlled or adjusted for that increase in carbon dioxide outdoors. Other than that, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, I didn't want to take a position on, you know, and, and say, you know, which of the studies are good or bad, I think all of the work that is presented is very, very consistent, very nice, and very, very good research. And we still have this debate. I mean, there's still debate is why is it that they, the effects are seen in some of the studies uh, of CO2, are in some of the studies and in other studies they are not seen. So that, that is a question, you know, that probably we will have more answers to that when we meet next time.
1: And if, if we didn't have uh, different study results, then it wouldn't be as much fun. <laughs>
0: That's correct.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, it's great to have you, you. as a guest, uh, Dr. Paul Wargaki, calling from the Technical University it. of Denmark. Thank you very much. I hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much, Joe. All right, you're welcome. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks again to this week's guest, Dr. Powell Wargarki uh, Wargarki out of the uh, University of Denmark, the Technical University of Denmark. We were talking a lot about CO2, bioaffluent, and indoor air quality, great stuff. Um, We'll be taking a a little break next Friday for the uh, holiday weekend, but uh, we're going to play a really good flashback show also want to thank my co-host the z-man cliff zlotnick at the controls john you gotta have faith most importantly our growing group of loyal listeners will be back live in two weeks we'll still do a flashback show next week with the next episodes of iaq radio
2: for iaq radio i'm spike Reed saying thanks for listening